So the question I want to start off with this morning is a question that really all of us struggle with from time to time, and, and the question is, can I really be, be changed? We ask that question, especially those times when we get in touch with sin in our lives, sinful habits, sinful attitudes, sinful patterns, and we can wonder, is it really possible for me to be changed in the very core of my being, changed morally, set free from some of these areas of sin? Is that possible? Maybe some of you have a tendency to uh, be angry, get, lose your temper at people, and, and you can think about kind of in the past, people whose relationships you've destroyed, people who you've hurt, and you've wondered, is it possible that, that that temper, that power could be broken? I could be set free from that? Could I be changed in that area? Can that happen? Maybe you will find that you love money, you love buying stuff, and it troubles you because you find that when you hear about people who are in need, who have less than you, you, you really don't have any compassion for them. There's no sense of generosity wanting to help them. And, and it troubles you. You wonder, could, could, I, could my heart be changed so I could become a generous person? Is that possible? Maybe you find that you are enslaved or in bondage to maybe alcohol or some kind of drug use or food or seeking fame. And you wonder, could, could I be freed from that? It's got such a hold on me. Maybe for so many years, is it really possible that I could be changed? Now, the reason I, I raise those questions is because I think that's Moses' point. Moses wrote the book of Genesis. I think that's his point in Genesis chapter 28, which is the chapter we're going to be looking at this morning. And Moses has some very good news for us because his answer, I'll go ahead and tell you the answer, his answer is yes. We can be changed. And he doesn't just tell us that we can be changed. He shows us how we can be changed. So turn to Genesis 28, and while you're turning there, I want to give you kind of a big picture of the context of the whole book of Genesis, where we're going, so that you can see the context of this passage, what, what, the, what Moses is doing through these chapters. So Genesis starts off with chapters 1 and 2, where God creates an amazing universe and a beautiful planet Earth, and he creates Adam and Eve. And by creating in that way, God shows us he is flawlessly wise, he is infinitely powerful, and he is perfectly good and loving and generous and compassionate and kind, which means we have every reason to trust him constantly, to love him passionately, to obey him instantly. You see who God is displayed in creation? That's what we're called to do. Tragically, though, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are tempted by the serpent, who's Satan. They say yes to the temptation, and they turn their backs on God and say, we're going to decide ourselves how we're going to live. As a result of that, the world comes under God's curse. Because of their sin, we've all sinned in the same way, the world is under God's curse because of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. But that's not all that happens in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I hope you're memorizing this verse. Three promises. I'm just going to tell you the third one. God promises that through one of Eve's offspring, that one of Eve's offspring, some human being born as the offspring of Eve, that human being is going to crush 
the serpent's head, which means he's going to destroy Satan's power. In the process, his heel is going to be crushed, but he's going to crush the serpent's head, which is a mortal wound. And the rest of the Bible lays out who that is for us. Who is it? That's Jesus Christ, the serpent crusher. And he died on the cross to pay for the sins of everyone who would trust him. And by dying on the cross, paying for those sins, he broke Satan's power. So all those who trust him are transferred from being under God's curse to being under God's blessing. That's chapter 3. The fall, the curse, and the promise. Isn't it great that God had Jesus be prophesied in the very third chapter of the first book of the Bible? I love that. That's the story of the rest of the Bible. So chapters 4 through 11, what happens? Sin increases, sin grows, sin spreads, so that by the time we get to the end of chapter 11, it looks like there's no hope for salvation, all godliness is gone, all that's left in the world is sin, but then in chapter 12, God raises up Abraham, and God makes Abraham an astonishing promise. God promises to Abraham, through your offspring, every family, every ethnic group of the earth is going to move from being under my curse to being under my blessing through one of Abraham's offspring, through the seed of of Abraham. And that's another description of the serpent crusher. The seed of Abraham, great, 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 great grandson of Abraham is Jesus Christ. And by dying on the cross, he purchased salvation for men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe. And then from Genesis 12 through 35, we see God repeating that promise, and we see God securing that promise, protecting that promise throughout the life of Abraham and the life of Isaac and the life of Jacob. And today we're going to dig into Genesis chapter 28, where we see God securing the promise of salvation by transforming Jacob. Powerful history here. So to set the stage, let's ask, what has Jacob been like up to this point? And if you've been with us, you know the answer is not pretty. Many commentators say it's astonishing how much sin there is in Genesis 25 through 27. Jacob, starting in Genesis 25, was a conniver, a grasper. We see that when he's born. Remember, he and his twin brother, Esau's his twin brother. Esau's born first, but while he's being born, Jacob's grasping onto Esau's heel like he wants to pull him back. So Jacob gets to be the firstborn. So from the very beginning, he's a conniver and a grasper. It's even more clear a few verses later when Esau is hungry and in a moment of weakness and just foolishness for Esau, Esau's willing to, to trade his birthright for that pot of stew, and Jacob takes advantage of his foolishness and weakness, and makes the exchange. Conniver, grasper. And then it's even more clear in chapter 27, which Pastor Ben taught on two weeks ago, where Jacob deceives his blind father Isaac into blessing him as the firstborn instead of Esau, who is the firstborn. At one point, Isaac says, who are you? And Isaac says, Jacob says, I am Esau, your firstborn. Jacob was a conniver. He was a deceiver. Genesis 25 through 27. 
And it's not surprising then that Esau wants to kill him. We read at the end of Genesis chapter 27. Esau's furious with Jacob for what he has taken from him, plans on killing him. This is a big problem, not just for Jacob. This is a problem for God's promise of salvation because the serpent crusher is going to be born through the line of Jacob. But if Jacob is killed, then no serpent crusher will be born. No blessing to every people group of the earth. So here, once again, we see, is we ask the question, is God's promise going to be fulfilled or is something going to thwart God's promise? And we've used the illustration of a big steamroller. God's promises are like a massive steamroller which just rolls right over any obstacle that can come up against it. And that's what happens here as well. How does God overcome this threat to the promise of salvation. He does it by having Jacob's mother, Rebecca, overhear Esau's plans to kill Jacob. So Rebecca goes to Isaac and says, isn't it time we get a wife for our son? And wouldn't it be good to have him go hundreds of kilometers north to find that wife, let Esau cool off a little bit? So that's where we are at the beginning of chapter 28. How does God protect Jacob from Esau. Look what Moses writes, starting in verse 1. Genesis 28, verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Now here's a map showing where Jacob is now. A little small, but so down here is Beersheba somewhere. Where's Beersheba? It's in there somewhere. And he's going to travel all the way up there, hundreds of kilometers north, to Haran, Padamaran, which is where, uh, that's um, Abraham's hometown. Because Isaac wants Jacob to marry a hometown girl. So that's what's going on here. Then Isaac speaks another blessing to Jacob, which again reminds us readers, this blessing that he speaks, he's the one through whom the serpent crusher is going to be born. Look at the promise. This is amazing. Verse 3, God Almighty bless you, Jacob, and make you fruitful and multiply you. And notice this next line that you may become a company of peoples. Peoples is plural here. This is just like what God promised to Abraham back in chapter 17. You'll be the father, Abraham, of a multitude of nations. One nation, the Jewish people, yes, but spiritually, because of your seed, your offspring, Jesus, you're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. Men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe are going to be saved. That's the same picture that's being described here. This harks back to Genesis 17. You're going to be a company of peoples through the serpent crusher, your offspring. You're going to be the father of a company of peoples, people from every nation, tongue, and tribe who've come to faith in Christ, moved from being under the curse of God to being under the the blessing of God. Verse 4, Isaac continues the blessing to Jacob. May God give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Verse 5, Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, 
the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. So Isaac speaks amazing blessings to his son Jacob, sends Jacob away to find a wife from his extended family up north. So we see God faithfully protecting Jacob, faithfully securing the promise, although we haven't seen any change in Jacob's heart at this point. That brings us to verses 6 through 9. And here the the focus shifts from Isaac and Jacob over to Esau, Isaac and Esau. So what does Moses tell us about Esau in verses 6 through 9? Let's read those verses. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Badan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, it's an important line there, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Now, what's going on here? I'm not entirely sure, okay? I'll just tell you, I'm about 60% sure of my conclusions here. So be good Bereans, like Luke says in Acts, search the scriptures for yourself. Here's what I think Moses wants us to walk away with from those four verses, verses 6 through 9. I think this is a reminder, another display of Esau's sinfulness. Here's why. He's already sinned. Esau's already sinned by marrying two wives earlier, two Hittite wives. Remember, polygamy is not God's original plan for marriage. Genesis 2.24 tells us what God's original plan for marriage is. A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, singular, and the two shall become one flesh. Monogamy is God's original plan. Esau marries two Hittite women earlier, and now he's going to marry a third. This is a continual departure from God's original plan for marriage. And I wonder if he's saying, I don't want to travel hundreds of kilometers north. It's not worth making Isaac that happy. He doesn't want a Canaanite wife. Okay, I'll just marry one of, Ish- you know, one of the line of people of Ishmael. But see, the people of Ishmael aren't part of God's covenant people either. So I, I think what's going on here, 60% sure, is that Moses wants us to get a sense of here's Esau's sin, so that by the time we get to, to chapter 28, verse 9, we're feeling the sinfulness of both Esau and of Jacob. Number 27 was a horrifying picture of Jacob's blatant lying and deceiving to his blind father. So that's what's going on here, to feel how, how weighty it is that we have both Esau and Jacob. Esau has been a wicked rebel through all these chapters, and Jacob has been a deceiving grasper through all these chapters. Jacob, deceiving grasper, Esau, wicked rebel. Sin looks like it's once again growing and spreading. How's this going to affect the promise? What's God going to do here? And the answer is that God changes Jacob. He profoundly changes Jacob. That's the point of this next section, verses 10 through 15. Oh, this is wonderful. Read these verses. 
How does God, what does God do to change Jacob? Verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place, so he's traveling north, okay? He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, notice this word behold happens three times in these verses here. Behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Now just pause there for a moment and and get, get what's going on here. Jacob has been a deceiving grasper. From chapters 25 to chapter 27, he is a sinful man, deceitful, conniver, grasper. So what will God say to him when God talks to him in this dream? Will God condemn him? He could have, right? That's what God did back to, remember the flood back in Genesis chapter chapter 7 with Noah and the ark? God could have condemned Jacob very easily. Remember what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19? God very easily and justly could have absolutely just condemned Jacob at this point. Here's a ladder to heaven. You are condemned, Jacob. Look at your sinful life. That's not what God does. He also doesn't come and say to Jacob, Jacob, you need to change or it's over. Get your act together quickly. My patience is running out. That's not what he says. He also doesn't say, you need to be really, really good, do something amazing to make up for how sinful you have been, young man. That's not what he says either. I want you to feel how shocking this is after Jacob's blatant sin to have God come to him and say, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Now keep reading, verse 13. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, you should notice that line there. This is the same promise that was given to Abraham back in chapter 12, same promise given to Isaac, and now here it's repeated for the first time to Jacob. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Verse 15, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So when God comes to Jacob, as Jacob has lived such a terribly sinful life, what God does is not condemn him, to tell him he must change, to tell him he has to be really good to make up for his wrong. What God does is give him eight amazing promises. What God is promising to be to Jacob, to do 
for Jacob. Let's take them one at a time. First, he's the God of Abraham and Isaac, and the implication of that is he will be the God of Jacob, which means that everything he has been to Abraham and Isaac, he will also be to Jacob. There's lots we could explain about that, but let me home in on one beautiful thing God did for Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It is because of what Jesus the Messiah would do on the cross, and because of Jesus' perfectly sinless life, when Abraham trusted Yahweh, trusted his mercy, Abraham was joined to what Jesus would do in dying on the cross in the future. He was joined to Jesus' death for his sins. He was joined to Jesus' perfectly righteous life. And for that reason, God counts Abraham's faith as a lifetime of perfect moral righteousness. Abraham was not sinless, but he was clothed with God's perfect moral righteousness in Jesus. And so God related to Abraham as if Abraham had never sinned. He delighted in him. He loved him. That's what God did for Abraham. That's what God did for Isaac. That's what God would do for Jacob. That's what God has done for each of us who are trusting Jesus Christ. Second promise. He'll give the land to Jacob and his offspring. There's the land, the promised land. Third promise. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. This is the people of Israel spreading to north, south, east, and west. Fourth promise, in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Like I said, here's that promise repeated again. One of Jacob's sons, great, 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 great grandson of Jacob is Jesus Christ, born in the line of Jacob. Jesus died on the cross, purchased salvation for all who would trust him. And so people from every ethnic group were going to be saved by God's sovereign power through the cross. Don't you love that? Not one ethnic group will be overlooked. God will save men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe. There it is again. Fifth promise, I am with you. And we can just gloss over that, but think about what this means. We're talking about the God who's created the universe, the God who has all power, all authority. We're talking about the God who has always been with no beginning. God who's sovereign over everything, who can hold the whole universe in the palm of his hand, this God is saying, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you my undivided attention. He's God. He can do that for all of us, right? Give you my undivided attention. I'm going to be rejoicing to do you good. I'm going to delight over you with all my heart and all my soul. I'm going to be with you. Sixth promise, I will keep you wherever you go. doesn't mean Jacob won't have any trials. It does have the idea of protection, but it means that God's going to protect him from anything that would diminish his joy, his closeness, his intimacy, his walk with God. God does allow trials to come to bring us even closer to God. He protects us from other trials, which will take us from God. God crafts every circumstance in our lives, trials and blessings, to bring us closer and closer and closer to him because he is the prize after all, right? Seventh, I'll bring you back to this land. Yes, you're going hundreds of kilometers north. I'm going to bring you back here safely, I promise. And the eighth, I'm not going to leave you until I do everything I promised for you. I'm going to be with you, Jacob. So because of what the serpent crusher would do on the cross, because of what Jesus would do paying for sin, God comes to sinful Jacob and makes these promises. Now, 
How does this impact Jacob? How does this affect Jacob? Remember who Jacob was. We've seen him at this point, a deceitful conniver. It's all we've seen since chapter 25, but this encounter with God transforms him. I think that's why Moses gives so much space here in this chapter to describing Jacob's response to this dream. It's in verses 16 through 22. We see Jacob changed in three ways. First, he beholds God's awesome glory. That's verses 16 and 17. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He knew something now that he hadn't known. Surely the Lord is in this place. I did not know it. And he was afraid. This is the fear of God. This is a good kind of fear. This is a holy fear. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? Now the word awesome, we use it, kind of a slang word we use, but this really was awesome. Listen, when you meet the living God, you know, oh, there's love, there's tenderness, there's kindness, and there's grandeur, and there's majesty, and there's authority. And there's this beautiful fear of the Lord, which delights in him. That's what Jacob is experiencing here. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. The Lord is in this place. He beholds God's awesome glory. And look at the impact then in verses 18 and 19. He worships God. We haven't yet seen Jacob build an altar. We haven't yet seen Jacob call upon the name of the Lord like we saw Abraham do and we saw Isaac do. We haven't seen Jacob do that. Jacob's been a deceitful schemer up to this point, but look at verses 18 and 19. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he'd put under his head, set it up for a pillar, it's like a memorial stone, and poured oil on the top of it, which is an act of worship. The worth of the stone, oil, valuable, I'm worshiping, not the stone, but the stone is a memorial of what God did in coming to me here at this place. Poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. So its name is changed here from Luz to Bethel. So here, Jacob worships. He has seen God in his glory, in his majesty, in his mercy, in his power. He has seen God and he worships. It's the first time we've seen Jacob worshiping in his life. Third, then, he commits to trust God, to worship God, to give to God. That's verses 20 to 22. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. I will, I'll trust him. I will trust him. And this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be God's house, memorial stone, Bethel, a place I will worship at. And of all that you give me, now he's talking to God directly, of all that you give me, Lord God, I will give a full tenth to you. 
Now, you might wonder, is this a good vow to make? I mean, God, if you do this and this and this and this, then I'm going to trust you? It's just like what Hannah vowed to the Lord. Remember, if you give me a child, I'll offer him to you. We see this kind of statement before. I think there's nothing wrong with it. God always says, test me in this. See if I'm not faithful to my promises. He says, look at how faithful I've been to my promises in the past. Therefore, trust me. All Jacob's saying is, you've made me these amazing promises. As you fulfill these promises, I'm going to trust you. But notice that he says, I'm going to trust God, I'm going to worship God, and I'm going to give to God. So Jacob's been transformed from being a deceitful conniver to now being a, a worshipful giver, if you will, a generous worshiper, something like that, a worshipful giver. Now, he doesn't become perfect. We're going to see in the next chapters, he's not perfect, just like Abraham wasn't perfect, and just like Isaac wasn't perfect, but he's changed. I think it's what Moses wants us to be feeling at this point, is Jacob is a different man here than he was in the previous chapter. He's been profoundly changed. So what I think Moses wants us to see here is that, yes, people can be completely transformed, just like Jacob was. And I think Jacob wants to, I think Moses wants to show us how Jacob's transformed, because this is also how we will be transformed. Now, it's important in Bible study, we don't want to pull truths out of narrative historical passages unless we can see them also explicitly taught in other teaching passages. So I want to show you three truths that I think are from Genesis 28 and show you three scriptures to back each of them up in other passages. So the first truth is this. I'm asking, what does this mean for us? Three things. First, you can be changed. I want you to hear this loud and clear. Maybe you've been like Jacob, a deceiving conniver. Who knows whatever else, just sin. Maybe it's been years of sin. Maybe it's been grievous sin. Maybe it's been what you think is especially serious sin. Maybe you feel like there's no faith in me. I have no interest in God. I'm just here because my friend invited me to come. I'm not a spiritual person. I'm very distracted by this or that. I'm Whatever it might be, Jacob was transformed. You can be transformed. That's what Moses wants us to understand. And look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, just to show you a very explicit place where this is taught clearly. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. This is an amazing passage. Paul writes to the believers in the town of Corinth, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That should make us all tremble. Do not be deceived. But look at verse 11. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. You were greedy. You were adulterers. You were swindlers and idolaters and immoral. You were practicing homosexuality. There was drunkenness. Such were some of you. What happened? It's amazing. 
Genesis 28 happened. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's what happened. So I want you to understand, no matter what you have been, no matter what sins have gripped you, no matter what sins have enslaved you, hounded you, conquered you, you can be completely transformed. You don't become sinless in this life, but you become changed. And then from that point on, you'll be progressively changed more and more and more and more, and you'll be completely freed from sin in heaven, but you can be changed now. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You can be changed by God's power received through Jesus Christ. That's the first truth from 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 and Genesis 28. Second truth is this. How are we changed? We're changed by beholding God's glory in Christ. That's what happened to Jacob. Jacob met God for the first time. Surely God is in this place. I didn't know. God's here. God's glorious. God's faithful. God's powerful. God's real. God. And that transformed him. And we have an advantage over Jacob in that now we have an even more clear revelation of God's glory through Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. And when God saves us, he gives you, us, each of us, the moment he saves us, he gives us a heart revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, we see that. Here's what Paul says. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. So let me just give you what Paul's quoting there. He's quoting from Genesis chapter 1, let there be light. The world was, everything was completely dark. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. When God speaks light, no darkness can resist him. Light comes. So the God who said, let there be light, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts, which were dark, blind to the light of Jesus' glory. Our dark hearts, he's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And when God saves someone, he shines the light of Jesus' glory through the gospel, through the truth of God's word, into their heart. You remember this. So for the first time, you not only saw the truth of Jesus, but you felt the truth of Jesus. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is beautiful. Jesus is loving. What mercy, what grace, what power, what sovereignty, what awesomeness is in Jesus. You, you knew of Jesus before that. Ho-hum. Jesus whatever. Now it's like, Jesus, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, that's what happens when God saves you. He gives you a heart revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what changes us. And that's what Paul says a few verses earlier. Verses, chapter 3, verse 18, 2 Corinthians. This is what changes us. Paul says that we all with unveiled face, when God saves us, the veil is lifted. Satan's blinding power is removed. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. Are being transformed. How? By beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
growingly. We're growing in that. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We can be changed. Change comes through beholding God's glory in Christ. And we don't need to wait for dreams. The place we most clearly see God's glory in Christ is in the gospel, is in the word of God. You can open up God's word. You linger over God's word. You pray over God's word. You say, God, show me your glory. Open my eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Show me who you are. And as God's people do that, as we spend time lingering over the word of God, he will give us times when he so shows you his glory in Christ, so fills your heart with his glory in Christ, that that sin just gets washed out of your heart, bitterness just washes away, lust just washes away, greed washes away, you, you have joy in Christ, you hate sin, you love other people, he will give you times where you see his glory in Christ so clearly that your heart is once again transformed. See, I would encourage you, when, when you experience sin rising in your heart, maybe it's bitterness or it's um, discouragement, maybe it's anger at some other person or hopelessness or whatever that might be, your heart can be transformed by seeing Jesus Glory, seeing God's glory in Christ. And so instead of just settling for it or just, well, I'm just going to get busy at work and it'll go away. Or No, we, we, we take time as soon as we can. Sit down at your kitchen table. Open up the word of God. Pray, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory in Christ. And we read and we pray and we study and we think. And we, we read and we pray and we study and we think. And God will meet you. Draw near to God. What's his promise? He will draw near to you. He promises that. And your heart will be changed. You've experienced this. I've experienced this. There's been times where my heart has been so discouraged or so bitter or so frustrated about something. Just like, this heart's never going to change. Just heart's just like, right? And, And you open up the word of God and you pray and the Holy Spirit starts to slowly that bitterness starts to, starts to release and, and your heart gets changed. This is how we're changed. We can be changed. We're changed through beholding God's glory in Christ, in the gospel, in the word of God. I hope this is good news for some of you, for all of you, because some of you have been just trying so hard to change, trying to change, trying to to forgive, trying to be patient, trying not to lust, trying not to love money. That's not how we get changed. We get changed by having our hearts filled and satisfied and cleansed by beholding God's glory in Christ. Try opening up the Bible and praying over the scriptures. You want to put your try in that direction. And God will change your heart. You can't change your heart directly by your own willpower. But you open up the word of God, say, meet me, help me. He will. There's one more crucial truth, though, that I want to share with you, which is hinted at in Genesis 28, but clearly taught by Jesus. And this third truth is that all of this is freely given to us through Jesus Christ, received by faith alone. Jacob didn't need to try to do a lot of good to earn God's favor. Jacob 
wasn't immediately condemned by God. All Jacob needed to do was trust God's promise. And all of what God promised was happening for him. This is freely given to us through Jesus Christ. Look at John chapter 1, verse 51. It's an amazing statement by our Lord, our Savior. He, Jesus, said to him, Nathaniel, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending. Remember where that came from? The ladder to heaven, Genesis 28. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In Genesis 28, the angels were ascending and descending on the ladder, right? Jesus says the angels are ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is the phrase Jesus uses to describe himself. What Jesus is saying here is, I am the ladder. I am the ladder. I am the ladder connecting earth to heaven. I am the ladder on which angels ascend and descend. I am the ladder through which God reveals himself. I am the ladder. Now, why? It's because the barrier between earth and heaven the barrier between you and God is sin. Sin is an impenetrable barrier between you and God. Oh, you need to feel this. I hope you've been forgiven so you're not discouraged by it, but I hope you are reminded of it so you love Jesus all the more. And if you haven't yet been trusting, if you haven't yet trusted Christ, I hope you, you will be weighed down by this. Sin is an impenetrable barrier between you and God. You're here on the earth Here's your sin. God's a holy, blameless, just God, and no favor from God can come to you. All that can come to you from God, as long as you're in your sin, is judgment and punishment forever. But Jesus died on the cross to pay for sin. Jesus paid for the sins of everyone who would trust him. And so by putting your trust in Jesus Christ, by trusting Jesus to forgive you, trusting Jesus to change you, trusting Jesus to fill and satisfy you, the moment you put your trust in Jesus, that barrier, that impenetrable barrier of sin is gone. Poof. Gone. And there's the ladder. From here to God, Jesus is the ladder. I can, I'm going to take too much out of this analogy, I can go up the ladder and meet with God. God can come down the ladder and meet with me. We can meet together because the barrier of sin is taken away. Here's what I want to leave you with this morning. Every one of us in this room is in one of three places when it comes to this ladder. Some of us don't care about any ladder to heaven. You just don't care. You're here on earth. You got your job. You got your money. You got vacation coming up. You know what restaurants you like. You like to watch a little football, eat some pizza or whatever you eat in your country, braai, whatever it might be. You, know, you, just, you just got your life going on. You're not, you don't care about heaven. You've got earth. You don't care about any ladder to heaven. That's where some of you are at this morning. Others of you are trying to build your own ladder to heaven. Every other religion 
tells you how to build your own ladder to heaven. Every other religion tells you what you need to do in order to earn your way up to God, be towards God, to go Godward. Maybe you're diligently meditating. Maybe you're going to church to build your ladder to God. Churches, Bible preaching, gospel preaching churches can have many people in them who don't understand the gospel and think that by going to church, they're building their own ladder to God. People who think they're Christians can think that they're Christians even though they're trying to build their own ladder to God. So you may be trying to build your own ladder to God. That may be the camp you're in. You're not the person who doesn't care about heaven, doesn't care about any ladder to heaven. You do care and you're trying to build your own ladder to heaven. And then there's a third category though, and it's the right category. It's the true category. It's the category I pray and long for each of you to leave here in. And this is the category where you are trusting Jesus as your ladder. Jesus is the ladder. I could never be good enough. I could never earn my way to heaven. I'm seeing that it is desperately important that I meet God, that I have a ladder between me and heaven, between me and God. I understand I'm created by God. He's made me for the joy of knowing him. I'm never going to be satisfied apart from him, and unless I come to know him on good terms, I'm going to be facing judgment forever. So it's desperately important that I have a ladder to God, but I know I can't build my own ladder, but I'm seeing that Jesus is the ladder to God. So which of these three camps are you in this morning? If you're in the first one, not interested in any ladder to heaven, I've got earth, please open your heart, open your eyes. There is a God. You have every reason to believe there's a God. He sent Jesus to show us that he's real, that God is real. Jesus went to the cross to show us how we could be forgiven as sinful as we've been. And he, God, in Jesus, is standing before you today saying, I've sent Jesus. You can be forgiven. You can be changed. You can be filled and satisfied. Trust me. If you're in the second camp, you're trying to build your own ladder, stop. Just stop. It's not working. You know that. It's never brought you any satisfaction except for maybe a few little driplets of self-righteousness, which aren't worth anything. You haven't felt God's love poured into your heart through trying to build your own ladder because you're wrong in trying to build your own ladder. The religions that have taught you that are wrong. Jesus came to show us the right way. He is the ladder. So turn from trying to build your own ladder and trust Jesus. That's the takeaway for today. Are you trusting Jesus? Are you relying on Jesus to forgive you? you just ask yourself honestly right now, are you clinging to Jesus to forgive you? Are you relying on Jesus to show you the Father so that your heart gets changed? Are you relying on Jesus, who he is, to fill and satisfy you? Are you trusting Jesus to provide for you, to guide you, to comfort you, to protect you? Are, are, is in, I mean, in your heart, is there trust in Jesus there? If so, praise God for his grace. And if not, trust him now. Look at what you've learned about him this morning and trust him now. Let's pray together.
God, I pray for your power to touch those who have come in here this morning thinking they don't really care about whether there's a ladder or not. And I pray, Lord, that right now you would help them care, help them see how desperately they need sins forgiven. Let them turn and trust Jesus. Lord, those who've been trying to build their own ladder, have them stop, have them turn to Jesus, trust Jesus, lay down their own works, lay down their own self-righteousness, trust Jesus to forgive them, to change them, to satisfy them. Lord, I pray that we would all leave here this morning trusting Jesus Christ, our Savior, the ladder between God and man. In Jesus' name.